No Tigers game last night, but we've got plenty to talk about, including a Casey Mize no hitter in his Double A debut, and some listener questions. And in a few minutes, I'll be chatting with Tim Kelly of Phillies Nation and the Locked On Phillies podcast to preview this two-game series with Philadelphia on today's Locked On Tigers podcast. It is Tuesday, April thirtieth, twenty nineteen, and a happy Walpurgis Nacht to all my German friends. I am your host, Chris Brown, reminding you to please download, rate, review, and subscribe to Locked On Tigers on your favorite podcasting platforms be they Stitcher, Spotify, Google, iTunes, or Himalaya. And when you get into your car, tell your smart device to play podcast Locked on Tigers. So I had no intention of covering Casey Mize's debut with Double A Erie. I mean, I may have mentioned it, but then he went out and did that, so I figured we kind of have to talk about it. And you know what? I encourage people to go ahead and buy the MILB TV app if minor league baseball is the sort of thing that intrigues you. The cameras and broadcasts can be a bit hit and miss, and you're dealing with minor league broadcasters, so not everybody's as good as our friend of the show, Dan Hasty. Uh, I will never not make fun of the announcer for the Bowie Bay Sox, who sounds like Snagglepuss. You'll just be watching, and all of a sudden he'll be like, and that's a foul ball, don't you know? But yeah, the, the whole point is, if you're interested in minor league baseball, go ahead and watch some of these players for yourself. Don't just rely on scouting reports. But in any event... It was a really cool event for Casey Mize. It was fun to watch, although it was a little bit confusing. I have to admit that. Casey Mize was out there throwing 94 to 96, some arm side run with his fastball and occasional sink into down into right-handers. But the fastball was generally pretty straight, and he had a real hard time locating it. After that, your guess is as good as mine. Like, I was talking to some really smart baseball friends, you know, Brandon Day from Bless You Boys and Keenan Carter from the Minor League Tracker and Robert Jayens from Twitter, and none of us could figure out, like, what was going on with his pitches. We, we all had a decent idea. Like, is that is that the slider? Is that the cutter? Is that a splitter up in the zone? Is that a changeup? Is that a sinker? Like, he might have thrown, I think Keenan said he threw nine different pitches, and it's entirely possible. It was like this weird masterpiece of junk, but it just didn't start off great. He hit the first batter he faced, but then after that, he got a ground and a double play, and Altoona, by the way, has, has a player named Bly Madras and another player named Arden Pabst, and those are definitely alien pirates pretending to be baseball players, because that's ridiculous. But yeah, the game itself was was fairly uneventful. Mize wasn't getting a ton of strikeouts or by any means. We finished with nine innings, no hits, one walk, seven strikeouts, which is obviously a no-hitter's great. But it was, you know, it was just a weird, weird sort of, I wouldn't call it a dominating performance by any means, despite the fact that he threw a no-hitter. It was 19 first-pitch strikes to the 28 batters he faced, but he started off, he threw first pitch strikes to just three of the first 10 batters, and then he rattled off 10 in a row and 16 out of 18 to end the game, which is really impressive. But like I said before, his fastball wasn't working at all, and he basically abandoned it in the second half of the game. He didn't get a ton of swings and misses. I only counted 14. He had 20 foul balls, and then there were three really good defensive plays made behind him. One was a Derek Hill diving catch in center field. Jose Azacar made a nice sliding catch in right field, and then Sergio Alcantara made a nice play on a grounder up the middle as a second baseman. And man, it was just a weird game. The, the one walk he issued was to Bly Madras, the space pirate, and that was his first walk of the season in 91 plate appearances. And the Altoona announcers mentioned it was the first time Altoona had been no-hit since 2012 when a pitcher named Giovanni Soto did it to them. And points to you, loyal Locked On Tigers listener, for remembering that Giovanni Soto was once property of the Detroit Tigers and was traded to Cleveland for Johnny Peralta. So there, it was interesting little parallel there. But, but yeah, can't ask for much more than that. 
And that led to a question from Rob. He asked if any other pitchers have thrown a no-hitter in their league debut. And I'm positive that it must have happened in the minor leagues at some point. I just don't know when. I don't remember any, and I don't know how to find that information. But I do know that Ted Breitenstein pitched a no-hitter in his first major league start for the St. Louis Browns on October 4th, 1891. However, it was not his first major league game, so people don't count that necessarily. I remember when I was a kid, Wilson Alvarez of the White Sox threw a no-hitter in his second start. So then, you know, I went out and collected all his baseball cards, and that was about it for him as as a career. But most recently, Ross Stripling of the Dodgers had a no-hitter into the eighth inning, but he got pulled because of a pitch count. And then the same thing happened last year to Daniel Ponce de Leon of the Cardinals. He pitched through seven innings, and they didn't send him back out there, even though he had a no-hitter going. So it kind of goes to show you what teams actually feel about no-hitters these days. But according to the Internet, Charles Leander Bumpus Jones who saw action in just eight Major League Baseball games, threw a no-hitter in his first Major League appearance with the Cincinnati Reds on October 15, 1892, which is also supposedly the latest no-hitter ever thrown. I assume that means regular season, but maybe latest ever. So, yeah, that's interesting, huh, Rob? But now let's dig into the Philly series a little bit. Yeah, and I'm happy to bring in Tim Kelly, the editorial director of Phillies Nation, a producer at Sports Radio WIP, and the host of the Locked On Phillies podcast here on the Locked On Podcast Network to get a preview of this upcoming Phillies series. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I figure it, you know it's always nice to get people who actually watch the team rather than me going through the stats and try to figure things out. But I, I decided to take a quick look, and, and just from the general view it seems like the offense is doing pretty well, particularly the the new players who've joined the Phillies in the offseason, but the pitching's a little bit iffy. Does that sound about right uh, so far this year? The offense has gone through some cold stretches, but when you have Bryce Harper, Reese Hoskins, JT Real Muto, and Andrew McCutcheon, among others, it, it's hard to ever get overly concerned about the offense. The pitching has been a mixed bag. Jake Arrieta and Zach Eflin have largely been quite good, but Aaron Noah has really struggled after a dominant 2018 season. And Nick Pavetta, who there were a lot of high hopes for entering the 2018 season, he was optioned to AAA after four starts this season. So and even the bullpen, which was expected to be a strength by many, it hasn't been. David Robertson, Tommy Hunter, and Victor Arano are all on the injured list. And Sir Anthony Dominguez hasn't been quite as sharp as he was a year ago. So you're not wrong, but I, I think pitching-wise it's been it's been mixed. Yeah, you know, Pavetta seemed like a really popular breakout pick this year, and then the first four starts just seemed like a disaster. Was there anything in particular you saw there? I think he has a lack of confidence on the mound at times. He, he's a front runner, and I don't even mean that in a bad sense, but he's someone that when things are going well, he has a lot of swagger. When they aren't, you, you see it in his body language, and beyond that, I think he, his secondary pitches still need a lot of work. Among the new players that the Phillies acquired this offseason, who have you been impressed by the most? There's some big names in there. Yeah, I mean, it's easy enough to say Bryce Harper, JT Real Muto, but I'll be a bit more creative and say Gene Segura. Segura just returned from the injured list. His first game, his first full game back, he had a three-hit game. That's already the third time he's had three hits this season. So he's doing a really good job uh, setting the table ahead of Bryce Harper and Reese Hoskins. Yeah, and you mentioned Reese Hoskins. You know, he and Scott Kinger, who are kind of cornerstones for my franchise rebuild in my fantasy league, and, and Kinger was a bit of a disappointment last year, but it seemed like he was really playing well in limited time this year. But he's on the DL right now, isn't he? Yeah, he's out with a hamstring strain. He did look really good in the very limited amount he played. He looked like someone that was ready to make an impact this year. 
So, yeah, that's unfortunate. But uh, as you said, there's some, there's some other hitters that could pick up the slack. So the Tigers are scheduled to take on Vince Velasquez and Aaron Nola. Uh, what can you tell Tigers fans about those two pitchers? And, and what's the level of concern with Nola so far this year? His numbers haven't been great. As far as Vince Velasquez, he's not going to go more than five or six innings most games, but he throws hard. He has a 199 ERA so far in 2019. So for your number five start, he's giving the Phillies a, about as much as you could possibly ask for so far. Nola's in one of those spots where the league is adjusted to him and he needs to adjust which you kind of think he's going to do he's still only 25 years old but he had two tremendous seasons including last year where he finished third in nl cy young voting uh hitters have increased the launch angle they're using against him and uh that that's impacted the amount of home runs he's giving up and he isn't getting ahead in counts like he was a year ago so on some hand, you're relieved that he's not injured because he had some concerning arm tendencies early on in his career that you didn't want to see pop back up again. But that would have been an easier fix than having to kind of out-adjust the rest of the league. Yeah, you know, so it, it seems like you're, you're expecting him to figure it out and, and get back on track. And I would I would argue that the Tigers are a good team to do that against. Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, they're, they're not hitting for much power at all this season, but I'm kind of curious if maybe Citizens Bank might help them. How's the stadium plan this, so far this year? It's obviously an ideal place to hit and not an ideal page, place to pitch if you're giving up fly balls. And that's some of the trouble Aaron Nola's run into, even dating back to like the last month of the 2018 season. Uh, it, it's also a pretty easy place to play in the outfield. There, it, there's not a ton of space like Coors Field or Oracle Park, one of those stadiums where you look at and say, boy, am I happy not to be playing outfield there. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to ask you about uh, Gabe Kapler a little bit. From the outside last year, you know, it seemed like there was kind of a hate relationship with him immediately, and then the Phillies got off to uh, a really good start after that, and it seemed like people loved him, but then things fell apart. And I'm, I'm curious about uh, what's what's the, the vibe there amongst fans regarding Kapler and the the locker room these days? The general vibe is so far so good. It's never good in baseball or in any sport when the manager is the story every game. And despite a great year last year from Aaron Nola, Gabe Kapler was that. Part of that was because he has a quirky personality. The other part is analytics were a new concept to Philadelphia baseball, at least to some. And, you know, analytics has kind of become a buzzword that no one's ever really defined so whenever someone sees something that they don't like even if it's not analytics they just blame oh analytics so that was kind of the debate every year because the Phillies beyond Aaron Nola and somewhat Reese Hoskins last year they just weren't that interesting of a team even when they were contending this year they are an interesting team so he's been pushed to the back in that sense a little bit which is good and then you know he had some things where he would show He's showing more emotion after losses this year, which is what I think a lot of people wanted to see last year. They could lose 10 to 1, and he'd point out one great at bat a Philly had in the fourth inning, and that didn't sit well with a lot of people. He's also putting together more consistent lineups, but it's easier to do that when you have four or five potential all stars in your lineup. The last thing I had for you today was you know, the Phillies are, are kind of built to compete now, and I'm curious what the biggest needs you see from them are this year, and, and if they have the help in the farm system on the way, or if you think they're going to have to make a trade or two? Yeah, I think they do have the help in the farm system, even after making a pretty giant trade to get JT Real Muto. They could stand out a fourth outfielder, a backup catcher, another reliever, but in all likelihood, their biggest addition will need to be another starting pitcher. All of the Phillies contending is contingent on Aaron Nola pitching like Aaron Nola again, because they may be in first place after a month with Nola not pitching well. They won't be after six, so that needs to happen, but behind him, a legitimate number two to slot in between him and Jake Arrieta, that could be crucial in helping them reach the postseason and be competitive if and when they get there. 
That sounds good. Maybe there's a, a fit for the Tigers, Phillies, eventually, if, if Matthew Boyd keeps pitching well. But, uh, yeah, I appreciate you coming on to join us. Tim Kelly, uh, is there anywhere people can find you? You, you can find me on Twitter, at Tim Kelly Sports. All right. And, uh, yeah, thanks again for joining us, and maybe we'll talk uh, later this year when they meet up again. Sounds good. And so after that preview, I'm going to finish up with a couple of Rachel questions here, which are always fun for me because they allow me to share some opinion and do some research. And her first question was about baseball movies she said which is the first one that was ever made and which one is the best and which one is the worst so i'm uh, no film historian but the baseball almanac tells me the first baseball movie was 1915's right off the bat although spitball sadie was apparently also made in 1915 and you know what looking at some of the names of these early baseball movies makes me wonder just what the hell was going on you've got one touch of nature the busher hot curves they learned about women swellhead rawhide and it happened in Flatbush. So who needs a Blue Chew ad when you have a list of old baseball movies? As for the, the best baseball movies, I really love Bull Durham. Uh, you know, there's some silly stuff in it, but it's really got a, gr- a ton of great scenes and memorable lines, and, and it just gets just about everything right, I think. Major League is obviously a ton of fun, endlessly quotable. And I really like Field of Dreams. I know a lot of people complain about it and call it sappy or silly, but I feel like it never pretends to be anything other than that. Like, it's a movie about ghosts telling a guy to build a baseball field so he can play catch with his dad. I, I mean, come on. And it gets the job done. And there's some really well-regarded baseball movies I haven't seen that I'd love to see. Like Sugar is a movie about Dominican baseball that's supposed to be really great. And I hear good things about the documentary The Battered Bastards of Baseball, which I think is about a semi-pro team. I'd like to see that. As for the worst movies, I, you know, I can't say I've sought out many bad baseball movies. I hear Trouble with the Curve is awful, particularly the, from people who actually, you know, do scouting. And I can't imagine Airbud Seventh Inning Fetch is a great piece of film. But it probably gets the job done for what it is. But uh, whenever I talk about this with, with Perry, uh, we always bring up the 1996 thriller The Fan, starring Robert De Niro and Leslie Snipes, which was directed by Tony Scott. And there are two things in particular that, that Perry loves to point out and that I love to hear. The first of which is that Robert De Niro in this movie, he's a crazed superfan, stalker of the key player on the Giants, who's basically Barry Bonds. But De Niro's day job is a knife salesman, which seems a tad bit on the nose. And then the second thing we like to talk about is that the climax of the movie features a baseball game being played in the middle of a downpour, with completely with lightning and thunder, which just goes to prove that Tony Scott had never seen baseball and had no idea what it was. So hopefully that's some, some answers. I'd love to hear other people's favorite movies, too, if they want to share favorite baseball movies, at least. I don't want to hear about, you know, 101 Dalmatians. And then Rachel's other question was, I would also like to know who has the longest at-bat ritual, because Rodriguez is up there taking off his helmet. Are there rules about that? There may need to be. As far as I know, I don't think there are any rules against taking off your helmets, at least not in Major League Baseball. I know in Little League, it's uh, an automatic out. But I know a few years back, Major League Baseball really wanted to crack down on the long rituals between pitches. They, they wanted players to stay in the batter's box. But that seems to have gone away completely. It's one of those things they enforced for a little bit and then stopped caring about. Now, I can't say I know the longest at-bat rituals by time, but David Ortiz certainly had a long one involving him you know, spitting on both of his hands and then clapping and then getting back in the box. But the, uh, the king of long at-bats was Mike Hargrove, who I mostly remember as the manager of those Indians teams in the mid to late 90s that had such great offenses. But he earned the nickname the Human Rain Delay because he would step out of the batter's box between every pitch and adjust his helmet and his gloves and his sleeves and wipe his hands on his pants. And he'd do that between every single pitch. And then sometimes he'd do it twice. And, yeah, it was just it was a nightmare for pitchers. And also, fun fact, Hargrove managed a semi-pro team in Kansas about a decade ago called the Liberal BJs which is the best team name in sports. And that's the show. Thanks again to Tim Kelly for coming on and giving us a preview of the Phillies. And thanks to all of you for listening. And again, I remind you to please 
Download, rate, and review the show and subscribe on all the podcast networks. And send me questions or comments on Twitter at ChrisBrown0914 or at LockedOnTigers. Or you can email me at LockedOnTigers at gmail.com. And yeah, tomorrow I'll be back to break down the first game against the Phillies. And who knows, maybe Matt Manning will throw a no-hitter because Casey Mize and Alex Fido have already done that in the last week or so. So yeah, everyone have a good day and I'll talk to you soon.